This is AMWA Diversity Dialogues, an interdisciplinary podcast designed to facilitate unfiltered conversations highlighting disparities in medicine and population health and what we can do about it. Thank you for joining us for another installment of AMWA's Diversity Dialogues. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jessica Kremen, who is a pediatric endocrinologist from Boston Children's Hospital, where she works in the gender multi-specialty services. And so today we'll be talking about the issues surrounding transgender children. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kremen, for being on the podcast with us today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. How are you? Doing well, thank you so much for having me. All right, so would you uh, go ahead and um, elaborate a little bit more about you know who you are and what it is that you do? Yeah, so I am a pediatric endocrinologist, as you said, and um, as part of my um, clinical work. I am a physician in the Gender Multi-Specialty Service, which is also known as the GEMS program um, here at Boston Children's Hospital, where I provide care for transgender and gender diverse children, adolescents, and young adults. Okay. How uh, did you become interested in this field spe specifically? Yeah, um, kind of a uh, a lot of different things led to my interest in the field, one of which was friends and loved ones in the community. Um, another was uh, my work actually during medical school at the um, adolescent clinic at Mount Sinai, where I went to med school. And that was a clinic that cared for a very um, diverse and broad population of adolescents, including uh, some gender diverse youth. And then finally, um, when I was in residency, I went to residency at uh, Brown, um, Hasbro Children's Hospital, Brown University, and I got the opportunity to work with Michelle Forcier, who's a um, amazing provider uh, who had a kind of a large population of transgender and gender diverse adolescents and young adults in her care and a big program and a really, really wonderful clinician who taught me a lot about the field. And uh, that was what led me to actually be interested in the field. And one of the things that kind of got me interested in, in pediatric endocrinology and interested in coming to Boston Children's Hospital to finish my training because of the GEMS program, which was the first clinic in the United States to provide care for uh, transgender and gender diverse yeah. children and adolescents. That's interesting. I, I did not know that. And that's that's quite a, a journey into this field and very important um, that you have gotten into this area. Um, so uh, let's dive in a little bit more. Uh, what percentage of your practice is devoted to uh, transgender health care? About 50%, so it's about half of what I do. Um, the remainder of my practice is a mix of general endocrinology, um, which includes diabetes, um, care for thyroid disorders, growth disorders. And then I'm also a, a part of our clinic 
called our BU clinic, which is Behavioral Health Endocrinology and Neurology, which provides care for individuals with uh, differences of sex development or intersex diagnoses. Okay. Um, and, and, you know, I was saying to you off air that, you know, I am not as educated on this topic as I would like to be. And so if we're being candid, and I'm sure many of our, our listeners are, are also in the same position, you know, and so I, you know, it didn't even occur to me that an endocrinologist would be the, the type of provider that would be specializing in this area. And it, I mean, it makes sense now that I've thought about it, but it wasn't, you know, I didn't think specifically an endocrinologist and of course, you know, so that's just a, a reflection of, you know, where the, the knowledge is lacking for me. And it does vary quite a bit depending on the geographic location. So in some places, clinics that care for transgender and gender diverse youth are run by pediatricians who don't have endocrinology training. Some places they're run by adolescent medicine doctors. Some places family medicine providers participate in the care. So um, in, you know, pediatric endocrinologists are one of many types of uh, medical providers that can sort of participate in this type of care. So not just limited to pediatric endocrinologists. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, a, a parent or parents uh, bring their their child in to see you and for, a, you know, a consult about transgender. And what could you tell us a little bit more about the steps that you take in your initial ev- evaluation? Yeah, so our primary approach for all families and all youth that we see is really to get to know what their goals are and how we can best support those goals. And that really varies so much from individual to individual. So um, the initial meetings that they have with our clinic are uh, one meeting with one of our mental health providers and that's called an intake meeting. And at that meeting, they really go into their history um, in terms of their their mental health history, in terms of um, history with gender identification, gender exploration, gender expression, and that helps us to understand where patients, youth, and families are coming from um, in terms of what they've experienced before and kind of lets us know how we can best help them going forward. Um, So the next meeting after that meeting with the mental health provider for an intake is usually a meeting with a medical provider. And at that meeting, that would be where I would meet families and kids, youth. And at that meeting, we would really discuss what the medical goals are for the individual. And that again, varies considerably from individual to individual, but um, in no case do we have kind of a one size fits all model. We really try and just get to know what their goals are to figure out how to best support them. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, I mean, and that makes sense. Um, so about how much time is spent with the child or the youth alone? Yeah, it's a great question. So it really varies quite a bit from individual to individual. Sometimes the youth is really open to and ready to speak and dialogue with the provider. um, And that's a really productive and and fruitful conversation. Um, And so that would be a longer period of time. So I usually try and do, you know, at least a third, even up to half of the visit with the youth alone. 
and always starts a visit out by with the family and the youth saying, you know, we're going to spend some time talking just to the, the young person. So, um, it's always kind of a expectation upfront at the visit, but again, how much time we spend with the young person really varies dependent on what they want and how much, you know, kind of benefit they get from that interaction. Right. And, and it's not always the case that, um, a child or a young person might have the support of their parents. And so are there any instances of that that you've experienced particularly? And like, how do you give advice to those children or adolescents? Yeah, so that's a great question and definitely one of the most challenging aspects of the type of care that we provide. So one of the things that we can do, we can always do is support the adolescent. The model of care that we use is to, um, it's called gender affirming care. So the idea is to affirm and support and um, create a safe space for the expression of gender identity as the young person um, experiences it. Mm-hmm. So that's the number one thing that we try and do is create a safe space for talking about gender identity and expression and talking about um, what the young person's concerns, questions, goals are. So we can do that no matter what. You know, we have the opportunity to have a relationship with the young person um, to talk and create a, a space for a, a dialogue. Um, In terms of medical care and medical intervention, the age of consent for medical intervention is 18 in Massachusetts where I practice. And so if someone is under 18, we need the consent of their um, guardians for all medical care. So we cannot um, administer um, most of the kind of uh, things that people traditionally associate with gender affirming medical care. So things like gender affirming hormones, um, surgeries, none of that can be done without the consent of the guardians um, for people under 18. So it's a challenge in cases where people, where the youth is certain that that is what their goal is and uh, they don't have the um, support of their guardians. And so our clinic is built on a model that is meant to embrace and support the whole family unit. So we do our best to work with the family unit to make sure that there is um, harmony and agreement between all parties to the best of our ability. Our obligation ultimately is to create a safe space and support the the child or adolescent. Um, And so we really try and strike that balance to the best of our ability. Right, and I can imagine that definitely being a difficult at some times to to reach that balance but but more important than anything else of course yeah yeah and i think the other piece that i would emphasize is that again our obligation is to keep the youth safe and healthy mm-hmm. and um at times um the gender dysphoria associated with um not being able to undergo physical changes associated with one's gender identity can be a source of enormous distress um, can drive um, you know really significant depression anxiety and sometimes suicidal feelings and so in those cases we really have to again balance our obligation to keep the young person safe and healthy with um you know the the dynamic in the family and and again it's there's no single answer to the question because no family is like exactly like any other family. Um, but 
what we try and do again is support the youth as best we can, support the family as best we can, and really try and come together with the goal of um, keeping the youth as safe and healthy as possible. Yeah, yeah, and, and I, it, it wasn't a surprise to me that a discussion about, you know, the mental health is, you know, at the forefront of the evaluation because, you know, going forward, if I can't imagine, you know, having these feelings and knowing that, you know, this is what you want and not being able to achieve that. It can, I can definitely see that that would be a significant source of distress. Yeah, it definitely can be. Um, I also want to emphasize that there are a lot of cases we see where the families are an enormous resource and enormous source of support and um, affirmation and well-being for many of our youth. So um, we, we, I would say more often than not, I'm seeing um, families where the the youth is incredibly well supported and embraced and um, you know that's such an amazing uh, asset for young people to have and such a predictor of um, you know improved well-being of resilience to have have family support and I see it again and again and you know those are the 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 wonderful situations that we really you know kind of where we see that the children and adolescents thrive yeah all right. Well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and and uh, just to talk about some numbers. Uh, what is the current estimate of the the incidence of transgender identification among children and adolescents in the United States today? So uh, this is a little bit of a hard number to come by because you know it's a little uh, hard to know if all people with transgender or gender diverse identities actually um, express them publicly. Um, But given what we know currently, the estimates are that the um, incidence is about 0.7% among youth ages 13 to 17, and about 0.3% of the adult population identifies as transgender or gender diverse. Really? I I am very surprised at that number. I probably expected it to be more. Yeah, but as you said, it's it's an estimate. It's not a, um, a actual you know full fully proven statistic. So there is. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say I think that one of the limitations for understanding the actual number is that in a lot of places and a lot of environments, people who identify as transgender are not embraced and do not feel safe uh, coming out publicly or publicly identifying as transgender. And so they may not feel comfortable reporting their identity, which probably yields a significant underestimate of the rate. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. So, well, do you think the incidence that we're seeing with those numbers is increasing some from, you know, prior years? Or, you know, could it be that, you know, we still have, you know, areas, you know, where people are still stigmatized, but there definitely, as you said, more support happening. Could that be diminishing enough in certain areas where the conversation could be moving forward? Yeah, I think that's far and away the most important factor driving what seems like an increased 
incidence of transgender or gender diverse identification. I think we're just, a, a, as a nation, as a society, more comfortable discussing these things. And there's more public discussion of gender identity, gender expression than there ever has been before. There are celebrities now who are publicly identify as transgender, and that's really never been the case before the last 10 or 15 years. So with that, with increasing uh, visibility of transgender and gender diverse people, with increasing um, comfort with these terms, with these identities, I think more and more people who would in prior times not have felt comfortable expressing their um, identity now feel comfortable with the um, the terms with the way to kind of publicly discuss their identity so I don't think that it's a I don't think it's caused by public discourse on gender I think it is a consequence of people feeling safe to express who they truly are or safer I should say right well you know and so in terms of public discourse, you know, we've seen um, that over 2020, 2021, there's been almost like a surge in legislation surrounding um, transgender patients or transgender people and how their their lives, how they live their lives. Right. And so a lot, you know, and, and a lot of it is, is negative legislation and a lot of negative publicity, you know, in the media. And so what what is this effect having on, you know, the transgender patients in in the United States? Yeah, so that's a great question. So there there are actually academic studies looking at the impact on parents of transgender youth and um, let me say that it is very clearly a negative one. It, it, these, this legislation is a source of enormous distress, enormous uh, consternation, worry, concern for the safety of um, the children and adolescents who uh, are transgender, gender diverse. Um, so that's coming from parents and from the youth themselves. I think the, the same sentiments are there. There's uh, concerns about safety. There's concerns about feeling ostracized, feeling um, iso increasingly isolated by these um, these bills, which are targeting kind of two general categories of um, sort of transgender life. So yeah. one of them is uh, the category of transgender youth participation in athletics, mm -hmm. and the other category is transgender healthcare. Um, access to healthcare for uh, for transgender and gender diverse youth. So, to speak to the athletics bills that seek to prohibit transgender youth from participating in athletics, I see the consequences of these bills all the time in my clinical practice because I have many patients who are athletes and want to continue participating in athletics and are hearing now from legislators that they are not able to do this very basic, very important um, kind of rite of passage for young people and, and, and adolescents in American society, which is participate in youth sports. Um, I think that this legislation hurts youth in a lot of different ways. 
One of, way, one of those ways is by stigmatizing them, by calling attention to their gender identity, which is in most cases not what they want. They want to participate in sports as themselves. Another is by reducing their access to a very important um, tool for maintaining good health, which is athletics, which right. is sports. Um, you're telling the, this group of people that, you know, you are not allowed to have access to this activity that will keep you healthy, that will help you um, keep your, you know, build muscle, that will help you build healthy bone, that will help uh, keep, your, keep you at a healthy weight. And not only the physical manifestations of exercise, you know, that, that are being, that this group of people are being deprived of, but also the neurocognitive impacts of exercise. Right. You know, study after study shows that exercise is important for healthy brain development in youth. And we're essentially telling these young people that they're not allowed to have access to the um, very kind of fundamental uh, teenage and young kind of youth experience, which is, you know, participating in organized sports. So I think the legislation to ban youth access to um, sports among transgender and gender diverse young people is is incredibly harmful and, and is perceived that way by, by many of my patients. The other big category of legislation is the legislation that bans access to healthcare for transgender and gender diverse youth. And that has actually passed in Arkansas, a bill to ban access to healthcare and now has uh, been signed into law. And um, it essentially means that transgender and gender diverse youth cannot access life-saving gender affirming care in the state of Arkansas. Um, and there's similar bills in consideration in several other states in the United States. And, and that those kinds of bills are, are harmful for a completely different reason, um, which is that they prevent youth from having the ability to receive medical care that allows them to live as themselves, um, that allows them to live in the bodies that they were meant to have. And it really hastens and accelerates distress, depression, anxiety. We've seen in numerous studies that access to good medical care is a predictor of good mental health outcomes. And these bills are likely to worsen mental health outcomes in the transgender use in the states where they are passed. So I would say that in Massachusetts, we are lucky to not have experienced this type of legislation but the effects of the legislation around the country are still felt by my patients and then felt to a much greater extent by youth in the states where they are being enacted. They are harmful, they are discriminatory, and they worsen quality of life and well-being for thousands of transgender and gender diverse youth. Yeah, I, you know, there is so much in that to unpack, <laughs> but like, you know, the legislation for me, it, it speaks to those um, biases that people hold without exploring where where they came from. You know, when we talk about athletics, it speaks to the biases that, um, you know, people hold uh, with what, uh, you know, men and women can do or are capable of separately, right? Mm -hmm. So then, I've, you know, I, I've seen from my perspective where the most of the time when they're they're arguing 
against the, you know, the participation in athletics. It's usually directed at, um, you know, biological males participating in, in sports and correct me if I'm using the wrong terms there, but in sports as a, as a female. Right. Yeah, we usually say uh, just uh, assigned, you know, the assigned sex. So we would say someone assigned male at birth who okay. is a who is a trans woman or a trans girl. Right. So, yes. Yeah, so someone assigned male at birth who wants to participate in sport as a as a transgender female. And that's usually where they that's usually the argument that's they're strongly holding behind their legislation, you know, that you know, this assigned male would be, would have an unfair advantage and things like that. And it's like, well, you know, what are you saying about assigned females too, you know, within, within that argument? So, you know, there's, and I realized too, that there's always a lot of uh, these legislations, even as women, we see where um, there's always a lawmaker trying to decide what we do with our bodies right and they have no experience within within our bodies and you you know the same thing you don't have the experience of being assigned one gender at birth and 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 tra- being transgender so how can you speak so specifically and make such you know stringent laws around around it and there most times it doesn't seem like they're open to having a conversation and, and understanding and learning what, you know, their biases are and where they've went wrong with their thought process. Yeah, exactly. Totally agree. And I think you highlighted one of the troubling aspects of these legislation, legislative efforts. Mm-hmm. There are many troubling aspects of these legislative efforts, but one of them is there's no thought about the impact on these children and adolescents, right? What is it? Have you met a transgender young person? Have you talked to the family of a transgender, gender diverse young person to understand the impact? And I think the answer in a lot of cases for the legislators introducing these bills is no, that there is no thought about what this does to people who are effectively being told, you have no place in organized sports. We have no place for you. You are not allowed to participate in activities that all that are open to all young people because of who you are. Mm-hmm. And what message does that send? Not only to the families of transgender youth, not only to the transgender youth themselves, but to their peers, right? That it's right. okay for legislators to come in and say, you cannot. And you... exclude, yeah. Exactly. That it sets, sends a message of the in exclusion based on who you are, based on a fundamental part of your identity. And the reality is that the NCAA, the International Olympic Committee, all have policies about um, athletics that are based um, that are based on inclusion and that um, uh, don't permit this type of discrimination. So we can't um, expect states to legislate access to athletics for young people based on um, sort of very outdated understandings of gender, very outdated understandings of gender identity, Mm -hmm. and 
frankly, based on very harmful ideas of, about the kind of impact of um, or the acceptability of telling a certain group that they can't participate in an activity. Mm -hmm. And so the other part of what you were uh, discussing about um, life-saving uh, gender uh, health care, or I might have said that the wrong, but what, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Just, you know. Yeah, um, so when, well, the reason I say life-saving is that, you know, there have been studies now that have demonstrated decreased risk of suicidal ideation among transgender and gender diverse youth who are able to access certain types of gender affirming health care. Um, and, you know, there's been uh, one publication looking specifically at puberty blockers and the reduced rate of suicidal ideation in youth who are able to access puberty blockers. And so the, the, when we say life-saving, we mean that, you know, we see again and again in our clinical practice that youth come to us enormously distressed, sometimes with suicidal thoughts because they are not able to e express and experience the physical changes associated with their gender identity. And uh, we see again and again that the medical care that we provide relieves that distress and addresses sometimes completely resolve some of the mental health concerns. That being said, we require that all people in our clinical program engage with our mental health providers. There's a strong kind of um, current of mental health support and collaboration in our care for transgender and gender diverse youth in order to be able to address all aspects of mental health, recognizing that you know, there are many different factors that contribute to the mental health of an individual, and we don't expect or mandate that medical intervention will be the only approach to supporting mental health, um, positive mental health outcomes. So what I can say is that there, it's clear that gender dysphoria drives distress in many of our patients and that providing medical care can help to alleviate gender dysphoria and the associated distress. Okay. And no, and that was just my, you know, lack of understanding of what, you know, what the term, what these terms mean. And, but of course, yes, it would, you know, it's the, I, how do I put this? It's like, if the same way that you would want to provide support and prevent, just, you would just want to provide and support anyone who feels um, mentally distressed, right? Or would be thinking about suicide. I don't know how you can exclude, um, especially, you know, children and adolescents who need the support even more in, in, for any reason. It, it's, it's not logical <laughs> to me. <laughs> like, you know, just understanding this, it does, it's not, it's not logical at all. Exactly. Yeah. So, Let's uh, talk a bit more about, you know, your your work and your practice. And so what do you, um, how do you transition your patients from pediatric adolescent care into their adult care? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we don't actually have a formal process in place right now, though we are working to um, set one up. Uh, again, we are very lucky to live and work in an environment with lots of opportunities for great um, adult young adult and adult uh, care for transgender, gender diverse people. So what we usually do is um, we have kind of transition readiness questionnaires and discussions. So we sort of sit down with the young person and talk to them about um, some aspects of kind of moving into the world of adult care that sort of signal readiness for uh, transition to adult care. So that's things like whether they're comfortable refilling prescriptions on their own, whether they're comfortable making follow-up appointments on their own, um, you know, other kind of aspects of participation and ownership of their medical care that really signal readiness to transition. And sort of once we see that that's going on, we help identify a geographic location, a provider, a clinical model. Again, we have many options here. We're very lucky and, and privileged in that way. Um, but, uh, but we try and identify a sort of clinical model and a location that works best for our patients. And then, you know, kind of, uh, do as much or as little as they want us to in terms of performing outreach and, and helping facilitate the process to uh, move to a new provider who takes care of adults. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is, um, has been a very uh, educational conversation for me. Um, and I really appreciate that you've been able to, to discuss this topic um, on the podcast for us. And so as we are about to wrap up, you know, what would you consider the most difficult aspects of your work in this population? And also what are some of the most rewarding parts? Yeah, so I think we spoke a little bit about some of the more difficult um, right. aspects of the care. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I wanna emphasize is again, our, you know, our clinical program and, you know, our approach to care really is no, there's no one size fits all model. So we really try and meet families and um, individual youth where they are in terms of providing care and support. Um, one of the things that comes up again is I think there's a lot of misinformation in, out in the world and, and the discussion of the care of transgender and gender diverse youth has become politicized. And I would say one of the hard things is kind of when that spills over into the work we do. Mm. Um, you know, we, uh, we really try again to, to meet everybody where they are, but sometimes when misinformation about things like, you know, gender dysphoria or uh, being transgender, gender diverse, being a trend, being something that's induced by social media. I mean, these are all misconceptions mm -hmm. that um, are kind of widely publicized. And when we hear that, trying to address those can be a real challenge. Yeah. Um, sometimes, you know, uh, th those things spill over into the perceptions of families and, and guardians of transgender youth and trying to address those is, um, is sometimes challenging. Uh, but I would say kind of the vast majority of my experiences are with really supportive, loving, um, affirming family environments and that is an amazing experience and an honor to get to participate in the care of these incredible young people um, and and to see the ways in which um, a supportive, affirming, 
clinical environment, family environment, social environment can really help a young person blossom in into the the person that they're meant to be mm-hmm. and seeing that happen seeing you know people become who they're meant to be um seeing you know the way in which it can you know that kind of support and, and affirmation can really transform a person um is amazing yeah. it's 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 an honor uh, you know i i count myself every single day as you know honored to to get to participate in the care of these these young people so um i i love the work i feel so lucky to be able to do it um and and to be able to talk about it so thank you so much for having me today yes thank you again so much for for being on and i as i said i've learned so much and definitely have a lot of information to point me in the direction of getting more educated on the topic and i I really appreciate that i'm sure that we have listeners who have been enlightened today by this conversation. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate that, you know, we still have to be fighting these issues. You know, there's so many issues in the United States and in the world that you would think that in 2021, we would not still be discussing and having to fight legislation about and having to you know, argue about, but unfortunately that is, you know, that, that is our reality. And, you know, we just have to, to keep, to keep at it. And I, and, you know, providers like yourself are playing a key integral role in, in making a difference. And so I, I really appreciate learning from you today. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us. Thank you for having me. AMWA Diversity Dialogues is a podcast created by the Section of Diversity and Inclusion from the American Medical Women's Association. Thanks for tuning in.